Welcome to Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. My name is John Bartlett, and I'm your host. Philip Tedeschi is the executive director and a clinical professor at the Institute of Human-Animal Connection at the University of Denver. He studies and teaches the intricate relationship between people and dogs and knows from his own experience how instrumental they can be throughout the different stages of our lives. Philip has also been involved in Let the Animals Live, a program in Israel where prison inmates adopt abandoned dogs, train them, and help them find a home. Philip, welcome to Dog Save the People, and thank you so much for joining us today. Apparently, you're getting ready for a big snowstorm there in Denver. Yeah, that's right. We're we're expecting a couple of feet of snow over the next uh, three days, so everybody's oh, uh, awesome. headed, headed to the grocery store, stocking up on dog food, probably, <laughs> first and foremost. So, Philip, let's just, I wanted to ask you, so the work that you're doing right now, you're working with the uh, University of Denver? That's right. And you're working with the Institute of Human-Animal Connection. Right. And the Institute for Human-Animal Connection is uh, located in the Graduate School of Social Work on the campus yep. of the University of Denver. And and really, one of the things that I, I believe makes our work quite important and unique is that we're one of the, uh, well, we were the first, but one of the very few human-animal bond academic centers that is not located out of a veterinary framework, but out of a social science framework. So we're looking at this really through the lens of people's relationship with other animals. I love that. So it's not, it's not as clinical. And as you mentioned in your TED Talk, which we're going to speak about, it's very hard to um, quantify a lot of what uh, the relationships are bringing to the humans. But I think that sometimes we can really see how people's lives are transformed by having an animal, specifically a dog in their life. As a student, I began to pursue veterinary medicine and realized along the way that I was really more interested in human-animal connection uh, and not just veterinary medicine. And, and it started uh, with, you know, given an opportunity to teach uh, a group of adults who had been institutionalized most of their lives and diagnosed with schizophrenia, how to interact and work with horses. And in that process, in that very first experience, I realized that this was really the area that I was most interested in. And in talking with an advisor at that time, I was, you know, in college and I told him what I wanted to do. And he told me that I couldn't do it, that there wasn't any field of study like this, that I should just stick with my veterinary Mm -hmm. medicine focus. And I was, you know, a bit devastated. But the person that I knew was doing very interesting work in this area that now is referred to as ethology or really the study of animal cognition and behavior was Jane Goodall. Yeah. And she was beginning to talk about how we could learn about ourselves and learn about ourselves as human beings by recognizing the importance of our relationship with non-human animals. And it was very influential for me because at that time, there weren't a lot of academic programs to, you know, to kind of lead the way. The program that I have tried to help develop at the University of Denver is really the program I wish I had found as a graduate student. Oh, awesome. So tell me a little bit about dogs in general from your work. Our institute has been interested in the broad 
you know, understanding of people's relationship with other non-human animals. So we're, we're interested really in all of it. But dogs, I would say, take a very special spot in this process of trying to understand the power of these connections. And, you know, there's a lot, and I, th- I think you, you were exactly right. These are very difficult issues to study and to develop uh, and to measure the impacts of these relationships. But I think one of the most important elements about dogs is that we have been co-evolving with them for for so long. You know, and, and depending on, you know, which canine historian you read, I suppose, or, or study, they may say, suggest that it's been 10,000 years, but some would say 50,000 years or more that human beings have had these very strong affiliations with dogs. And the nature of that relationship then has resulted in what we consider evolutionary continuity, meaning that as we've evolved alongside each other, we've learned a lot about each other. So that now dogs could probably be articulated as the smartest animal relative to people. Even though we have other animals who have maybe more brain capacity or stronger you know, high levels of cognition, dogs know people and people have become familiar with dogs. And these relationships have then evolved over time to have these very unique capacities for relationship with one another. You have this wonderful TED Talk and you talk about this idea that for certain children who may be having trouble socializing or may be having trouble making friends or may may have some issues growing up or in their home, that having this dog, again, helps them socialize. But also the fact that having a dog, possibly bringing that dog with them to school changes everything. And, and it teaches them about how to have a trusted friendship in childhood. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how dogs are affecting children in this particular way. What we really have concluded or started have believe is that the presence of a safe dog can really provide tremendous implications for the health and development of children. So we've been studying this through the lens of what we call positive youth development. And positive youth development has different dimensions that predict good outcomes for children. And one of them is the ability to develop these skills, these interpersonal skills, or what we sometimes call social skills. And that one of the reasons that this occurs so successfully in the presence of a dog is that dogs are highly affiliative, are not artificial kind of or staged relationships. They're actual relationships with a highly sentient, highly attuned canine. And one of the things that's really exciting about this work is that it suggests that the presence of this safe animal allows for all different kinds of aspects of positive youth development to emerge. So in many cases, children who are are afraid or unable to participate or reserved or dysregulated will find the presence of a safe dog providing these unique skills and these unique capacities or opportunities dogs provide in these circumstances. This capacity for trust and this capacity for non-judgment you know, some of the early developmental traumas or um, sometimes referred to as the ACEs, these, these various kinds of adverse childhood experiences often have difficulty in settings early in life. And that one of the things that appears to be most valuable for them is the presence of 
trusting relationships. So an example of that um, that we've seen that's just an ex- uh, maybe one example is that by pairing a, a safe dog with a child who's a target of bullying often can change the dimensions or the relationship between children who are bullying that child and the child themselves and alter that experience for that child in school. Or a safe dog, for example, can provide confidence for a child to practice reading to that dog in a way that's which may sound far-fetched, but the often we're less worried about whether the child gets every word right when they're reading and more about whether they like to read or feel comfortable or safe while they're reading. So the non-judgmental presence, the the unique affiliation and support that that individuals can get from these dogs has has significant implications. And it's especially significant for populations that don't easily trust human beings. And so that's really, I think, where dogs have been doing some of their most um, important work. That's beautiful. Now, you mentioned in your TED Talk, there's a few things that I wanted to touch upon, but one of them is the relationship between violence to animals or domestic pets and violence to other humans. And uh, can you speak a little bit about that relationship? Sure. Well, I think, um, you know, the maybe the most important element of this understanding that, you know, cruelty is not without consequence goes to the issue of recognizing that our companion animals in most contexts, especially here in North America, and uh, but also in other countries as well now, are often considered members of that family, whether they're, you know, considered children. Some people refer to their animals as, you know, fur children and right fur babies and that sort of thing. Uh, But the point is that often, right, often that these animals become important members of the family. And what we now recognize that the unique ways in which animals fit into our family relationships, that when kindness is directed to them, we're teaching our own families these skills towards uh, humane care for one another and empathy and, and compassion. But when we see violence directed at those animals, neglect, you know, the omission of care or the commission of a, an abusive action, we're also then teaching our families uh, various forms of callous treatment of those individuals and that that has significant consequences especially for the developing members of that family. So when children are exposed to cruelty, um, violence and cruelty, those have implications for child psychological health. Sure. And we n- really need to be interested in this dynamic in part just because of the prevalence of animals. I mean, there's obviously a moral question about how we treat animals as well, but just from a prevalence standpoint, you know, there's more than 300 million companion animals living in homes across the United States. The treatment of those animals in those homes are predictors for the health and well-being of the persons living in those homes. These are risk factors when there's violence directed at them, and they're protective factors or health-promoting factors when there's kindness and humane treatment directed to those animals. So these become major strategies for influencing child psychological health and development. Now, Philip, uh, can you talk a little bit about how dogs uh, might help older adults and specifically with this idea of loneliness, about how loneliness is essentially bad for your health and how having a dog can possibly help to improve our medical health as well through 
relieving loneliness. And this is really right at the heart of my field. I'm a, I'm a licensed social worker, and social workers are trained predominantly to look at what we would consider social support systems first and foremost, that these are the building blocks to healthy, kind of a healthy lifestyle in almost every population. But these become especially relevant for older adults, you know, start to lose their support systems, either in the form of their work, possibly, or maybe their friendships, or in some cases, their partners, or the, you know, movement out of the home of their children, those sorts of things, their relationships start to change. So, so companion animals can play a significant role in this regard. And what we have uh, been able to determine is that not only do they provide benefits to the physical health, so that persons who have animals in their lives are often a bit more active, uh, tend to get up and out and and moving around and, and outside and interacting, but that the presence of an animal, particularly dogs, uh, this appears to be true for, build a social connection to others. And this kind of social capital is an exciting tool for the development of communities, especially older adult communities. So here in Denver, for example, we have naturally occurring retirement communities that in part are occurring because people want to live in these communities because they're pet friendly. They have trails to walk on, parks to go to, dog parks, places that these are mo- our opportunities, uh, what we sometimes refer to as social lubricants that cause people to interact with one another. And these social interactions matter in terms of our, our health, that we have to have relationships where hardwired or primed to be have social connections with others. And that when we don't, we start to suffer physical and psychological health-related concerns as a feature of isolation and loneliness. So isolation and loneliness are are very dangerous um, and are also found to be coexisting disorders with things like alcoholism, other kinds of substance abuse, obesity issues, other forms of of depression and anxiety that are often closely associated with with isolation and loneliness. These are are substantial drivers of things like self-harm and and suicidality in our society. So these are populations that are particularly prone towards finding themselves isolated and lonely are good candidates for the inclusion of, of a companion animal in their life. I know that my mom who lives alone at, and she's 87 and doing great, um, she lost her dog about 10 years ago. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of back and forth about whether she would get another dog or not. And of course, in retrospect, I wish that she had, she does have a lot of dog and cat visitors. So those are, are wonderful things that she can experience. Animals are, are in our lives across the entire human lifespan from early childhood. And some people even choose to have animals with them right up until the end of life, right into hospice and end-of-life care. And one of the reasons they do is that these are some of the most reliable and um, safe relationships that people have in their lives. So they serve this very important element of safety. So this concept of the neuroception of safety is, is you know, something that probably you're not thinking about when you're walking your dog, but it's that's what's occurring. Yep. And I hope for myself, uh, as I get in, get on in years, that I will be able to have animal companions alongside me. I know that during the pandemic, living in New York City, the city really shut down, as did many places. And I have three dogs at home. And for me, 
uh, even before the pandemic, but certainly during the pandemic, especially during the earlier months, taking my dogs out on a walk uh, not only changed just how I felt because I was able to get outside and it was springtime and summer, but also just to be able to have some kind of human connection with others. And of course, as you mentioned, the dogs are both social lubricants and social capital because they help me uh, talk to other people. People stop and want to meet the dogs. And I know that when I don't have a dog with me, I want to stop and meet everybody else's dog. So right. they really are such incredible gifts to all of us. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to watch dogs walking with people because you can see it just in the movement of the of the dog themselves and the person that these are often really synergistic uh, relationships. And, you know, there's some interesting science behind this. And, you know, one of the things that I've been studying for the last few years is the role that that our animals can play in, in trauma recovery work. And probably the biggest takeaway in this inquiry has been this concept of neuroception or what we would consider kind of the interpersonal neurobiology of our connection with non-human animals and recognizing that in the presence of an animal that's thriving, that's doing well, that's playing, that's relaxed, our ability to then parallel that same mental status or that same neurological status is increased and that it becomes an opportunity for our neurobiology to be activated in ways that are tremendously beneficial. So for example, when you're walking with a dog and you're having fun with them and they're enjoying themselves and you're beginning to enjoy yourself after a long day's work, then turns out you literally become more approachable. People see you as more friendly and it's not just their imagination. You literally are more friendly. So you're going to have a conversation that without your dog, you might not have. And you not only would have that conversation, but you'd like to likely to be more trusting, more optimistic, you know, more likely to talk about things that are, are important or matter that are personal in nature. So brings out in some ways these important qualities that are are hard to recreate in in other contexts. So Philip, you recently wrote a book called Transforming Trauma: Resilience and Healing Through Our Connections with Animals, and you were just speaking a little bit about trauma. What is this book about specifically? Well, you know, this is a a book that came out of a conference series that we did at the University of Denver called Transforming Trauma, where we had uh, experts who had been incorporating animals into trauma-informed care in a lot of different contexts. Now, in the United States, where we've really seen this becoming quite prominent is the recognition that animals can be tremendously valuable for those persons who have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, often who have been deployed, you know, our long deployments in various kinds of um, combat environments and military environments. So this conference uh, focused in that area, looked at the current research. And then the other dimension, you know, that caused us to want to do this book. I've met so many fantastic graduate students um, interested in this area And often they're interested in this because animals have played an important role in their lives. And many of them will say, animals literally saved my life at various points, that it allowed me to get through difficult moments and times. And they're their own proof of concept. And as a result, they come to our program wanting to be clinicians and social workers, often because they've already had their own very personal experiences where animals have, have helped them. 
So I think these are, are new, relatively emerging and new strategies. Um, the science is starting to catch up to what we intuitively know about this, and it's been an exciting area to study. I love it. And I've spoken to many guests on this show who have gone through different and various forms of trauma and or are living with uh, HIV, for example, and all of these people really are speaking the same, are bringing the same message and how their dogs and their animals have really helped to transform their lives, have created protection, made them feel safer, have helped them to relate to other people more. And it's just, again, it's, it's such a beautiful, beautiful subject. Now, Philip, one of the projects that you have been involved with is the Israel Prison Program. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, our institute became interested in what are called prison animal programs, sometimes acronymed as PAPs. And so these would be programs that have been instituted in correctional settings. And we've had them around for a long time. The very first one was established in a prison program in Washington state. But now we have prison programs in every state in the United States. And one of the uh, research projects that our institute undertook a few years ago was to study these programs and develop a strategy for best practices in the operation of these canine prison programs. We were interested in two things, kind of two major dimensions. What are the health benefits for the individuals who are incarcerated in these settings? But also, were they effective settings to improve and save animal lives as well? You know, which this win-win capacity of both having a place where a dog could be moved from, let's say, a shelter and placed into a correctional setting where they turns out that a dog can get a lot of what they need in order to become better socialized, to become more trusting, to become healthy, get good nutrition and good veterinary care, while at the same time, this responsibility for caring for this animal turns out to be a very important um, rehabilitation tool or strategy for working with persons who are incarcerated. So we've been studying these outcomes, and one of the um, opportunities that arose out of developing this best practice research in this area was to help implement the very first prison canine program in the Middle East, in northern Israel, at a prison called Harmon Prison, which is uh, not far from uh, the Syrian border, actually, in, in northern Israel. And that was a really interesting experience, in part because this had to be approved through the, the official channels in Israel, through the Homeland Security, which oversees the prisons. And it's turned out to be a fantastic success there, and we hope to open a second program here coming up this year. But what we have really found is that these concepts around caring for other animals and building the responsibility and socialization and, and the necessary empathy directed at these animals turns out to be a multicultural uh, capacity builder in these settings. And so it's a very been a very interesting project to just, to just look at how it has impacted uh, that particular prison setting. And so far, so good. That's fantastic. One of the inmates mentions that having had this dog in his life in prison, he discovered a lot of things about himself that, that he didn't know. The dog calms him, helps him to communicate with other inmates. And he said, we talk about what bothers us. And if we did not have the dog with us, we would never have opened up about these things. Right. And, and this kind of communication is not typical, really, in, in a lot of prison settings. And in fact, you know, one of the ways that some of the inmates will 
talk about the presence of these dogs is they'll say every single dog that they work with is a lesson that they needed to learn. So they start to look at these relationships as opportunities for personal change. And in many cases, just as an example, a lot of these individuals are parents. And as they start to re-examine how to care for this particular dog, they start to think about their capacity to be a better parent and start to think about how what they're learning gives them skills in these areas as well. So it's it's not uncommon at all to see one of the inmates, uh, if they see one of their roommates or one of their uh, cellmates getting frustrated to say, why don't you go take a break? Let me take your dog for you and while you get a breather. So you start to see this not only ability to recognize things like frustration, but begin to work on self-regulation, uh, on the capacity for um, humane and kind treatment of others. And as it turns out, one of the things that our research is showing us in this area is that not only does it improve the safety of the prison itself, but it also then starts to improve the likelihood for um, reducing recidivism post-release so that these are skills that have some durability once that person is out of their, you know, out of the prison itself and, and back in our communities. That's incredible. So, Philip, I, I really, again, I just want to thank you so much. Everything that you're working on and speaking about um, is so close to my heart. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah. now where can we find you um, on social media or where can we find a little bit more about you and your work? If you're a Facebooker, if you go to our Institute for Human-Animal Connection, you'll find that we have a Facebook uh, group. Great. So that's probably the best way to keep track of many of the events um, that we're doing. We're also, however, on uh, some of the other social media channels as well. Our website is socialwork.du.edu backslash human-animal-connection. I'm so glad that we had this chance to speak, Philip, and thank you again. You were wonderful. Thank you for inviting me to, to um, participate with you today, and, and I will look forward to staying in touch. It was fascinating to hear from Philip, who has been studying dogs for decades and has spent a lifetime surrounded by them. And I love that he is also bringing his knowledge and expertise into less conventional environments, like with the prison program in Israel. I always enjoy these episodes with experts in the field to hear their different perspectives. It also usually backs up with evidence what we all already know in our hearts about dogs' impact on us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. This show is a production of As It Should Be, a content studio. It is made with the support of executive producer Scott Benaglio and our producer and editor Jack Summer. Special thanks to our composer and neighbor Daniel Lampert for creating the music for the show. You can subscribe to Dog Save the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please subscribe and leave a review or rating. You can also follow us on social media on Instagram at Dog Save the People, Facebook at Dog Save the People Podcast, and Twitter at Dog Save the PPL. We have a new gift shop on the DogSaveThePeople.com website with our first line of show merchandise that includes super soft t-shirts. We are also happy to say that the shirts from the Tiny Tim Rescue Fund, my foundation, have also been added to the DogSaveThePeople.com gift shop. 
Profits from these t-shirts will be going to support independent rescues and shelters. If you have any questions or submissions, you can reach out to us on our website or on social media or email us at dogsavethepeople at gmail.com. New episodes come out every other Tuesday, so see you next week for another episode from Dog Save the People.